Welcome to 15 to Life, the podcast that talks about life after life in prison. Come with us on a journey and explore stories from within the prison walls to outside the prison walls. All of these podcasts are dedicated to the victims of crime. Hey, what's up? And welcome to another edition of 15 to Life. We're going to be jumping into a whole other interview this time. We're going to be talking to Joey Bell, first female interviewee, and three things going on. She's in Colorado, she's a female, and she's technically in a halfway house, so she's pre-parole. She's technically still inside, being outside. So it's going to be an interesting interview, something a little bit different. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Hey, what's up, everyone? So that wraps up that interview. Stay tuned for segment two. As always, be sure to like, comment any questions or suggestions you have, and definitely download if you want to save this for later so you can listen to it offline. Uh, Really interesting story, though. Uh, This is a money case, so more of a blue-collar type crime. Interesting. And she also was fighting her case from the outside, which is a first on, on my interviews. So go ahead. Let me know what else you want to hear about and stay tuned for round two. Today on 15 to Life, we're doing an interview with someone who is out of prison, but kind of still in it in a sense, which is uh, great for us, bad for her, uh, because we get to hear about it. And I've interacted with plenty of people that are in her situation, so I know it sucks, um, but it's great to get some exposure out to everyone to let them know what that's like for so many people getting out of prison. Um, but it's a stepping stone to bigger and better things. So today I have the privilege of speaking with Joy, who's going to tell us a little bit about herself. Um, I will preface it this with saying that, as always, I have questionnaires filled out. So and jump in and correct me if I get any of this wrong, but basically growing up, you you had your parents, but you didn't have the, the picture-perfect life. Uh, your dad had an automotive uh, body shop that he was working at. Your mom, interesting, I'd love to hear about the whole porcelain dolls and gardening, right? Uh, uh, that kind of scares me, but at the, sound, at the same time, it sounds very interesting. Uh, you guys like doing a lot of the, the great outdoor stuff, you know, camping, fishing, going to, to the little stock car races and everything. Um, your your dad suffered from some addiction and had some violent tendencies with mom, which eventually led up to a separation and, and remarriage. Um, and with that structure, family-wise, kind of wasn't there and really led you to, to feeling isolated, which is something from your responses, I'm going to say, was something that kind of carried on as you became a young adult up until really uh, going into prison, which you've been in prison twice. Um, And so I'm going to let you go ahead and talk about your childhood a little bit up until the point where we're getting to that uh, getting in trouble phase. So go ahead, introduce yourself. I just said, Joy, like throw your whole name out there and and, (laughs) like where you're at, like, uh, because if you guys notice, she's kind of in a prison bunk right there. Yeah. So go ahead. Sure. Hi, everybody. I actually actually prefer to be called Joy Bell, please. Joy Bell, sorry. Yep. Thank you. So Joy Bell Phelan. I am in Littleton, Colorado. As you can see, yes, you can see that I'm in Iraq. Um, I am currently (laughs) right this minute at um, a halfway house. Uh, And so community corrections for those of you that maybe haven't heard the term halfway house before. 
uh, it's kind of still in prison, right? It's that transition step between you're out of prison, you're not, you know, in a facility behind barbed wire, you're able to go to work, you're able to maybe do therapy, go to classes, do whatever else you're doing, um, but you have to be back here. So maybe it's similar to work release for some of you that might be familiar with that. Right, so you're still, um, I have to put in passes. I can't go anywhere that they don't approve me to go. It does happen to be run by Geo Group. So if anybody's familiar with that, um, I'm living it right this minute. So it's interesting. Um, it's still better than being in prison. I'll take it any day of the week. Um, but yeah, it's a different set of hoops to jump through and a different bit of stuff to do. Uh, so yeah, going backward to my childhood. Um, I think like anybody else, we think we had a pretty normal, we think our childhood's like everybody else's, right? Um, so I didn't know it was any different. Um, I'm an adopted child. I grew up in a town called Arvada, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver. So yes, the suburbs, right? Walked to school. Um, we lived on half an acre. I had chickens when I was a little kid, right? <laughs> I loved my big red chicken, right? Um <laughs> Dad built hot rods, right? So surrounded by, I still love, a beautiful muscle car. Appreciated that. Uh, grew up with an older brother. Grew up with dogs. I mean, just life, right? Didn't realize until much later that what happened at home was not normal. Um, I have a lot of memories of a lot of physical abuse. Um, at the time, I didn't understand it was substance abuse, right? You don't get that as a kid. Um I was very musical. Um, my big brother was the athlete. So we had, you know, that regular dichotomy. We didn't always get along like any other set of siblings on earth. Sometimes we did. Um, you know, and so it was just, we were both adopted. Adoption was a big thing for us. And I came to realize much, much later, I think it's very typical for adopted children to feel um, I felt like I had to buy relationships. I had to earn love and affection. And that played out in my life in a lot of cycles, um, mm. not just with romantic, intimate relationships, but also just plain friends. Um, I felt like that if I, with my own family, I felt like if I didn't behave right, that I would be abandoned again. And that's, I've come to realize, learn since then, that's pretty typical um, in an adoption sort of situation. That's um, just the way it works. So I was actually, I was that good kid that never got in trouble in school. Always, you can tell, I'm pretty articulate and I'm pretty well educated. Um, so I did well in school. I was active um, in drama and I sang in the choir. Um, I started playing piano when I was around five or six. Um, so very disciplined musically. Um, yeah, graduated from high school, um, but it was just rough. I think my parents divorced when I was... I think it was around 10. Um, and that sort of set the stage for there was a whole lot of other issues that came out of that, um, other sets of abuse and not so great things. So I was definitely, um, at the time I started committing my crime, I was on my second marriage um, with, of course, a violent man, because that's what I knew, right? I thought that was normal, for lack of a better word. So it wasn't unusual that I was married to a man that had his own set of addiction and violence issues. I thought that was normal. <clears throat> and I didn't see myself as a battered woman. Um, in a strange way, I thought other people needed help more than I did. You know, and perhaps, <clears throat> perhaps if I could have recognized what was happening to me was trauma, was abuse, was... And I could see it on one level, right? But I also couldn't see 
that I needed help just as much as some other woman who was actually being physically abused. The fact that he didn't put his hands on me doesn't make it not abuse. Right. Right. Um, and I didn't feel like I could ask for help. I didn't feel like there was anywhere I could go. And so I, what I started doing, I was at that time, I had my own business. I was running a bookkeeping and payroll company. I'm good with numbers. Right. Um, and so what I chose to do is I started stealing money from someone that I was working for to pay my mortgage and put food on the table. And when my addict husband didn't feel like going to work and we couldn't pay our bills, that's how I was supplementing our income. Wow. Yeah. So, so you started stealing money. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about that, right? Like, how were you able to do that and not draw attention to yourself and actually get enough to where you could pay the mortgages and all that? Well, let's preface this by saying that currently my restitution sits at half a million dollars before interest. So over roughly 10 years, I stole a lot of money. Um, I was working as a bookkeeper, so I had access. The, the first, my first victim, my first case was a doctor. Um, I had access to blank checks and a signature stamp. So it was very easy to write myself a check, hide it in the accounting system, and take, and I stole, good grief, at one point I was stealing something like $5,000 a month from this man. Yeah. Yeah. And after a while, it gets really easy to rationalize to yourself. Oh, I have to pay my mortgage. Oh, the truck needs tires. Oh, we don't have any food in that. Like we weren't living some, and my husband had no idea what I was doing. I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. Right. I was that secrecy, right. That shame, that fear, right. Nobody, I wasn't telling anybody what I was doing. Um, and on one hand, I have to wonder, did my husband have any idea like did he not at all wonder where the money was coming from you know and we've never had that conversation um we got divorced way before i ever went to prison um you know one day when he took a baseball bat to a stranger's car parked out front was the last straw um and i hired movers stole more money to rent an apartment hire movers move my butt out of that house right and we got divorced so then of course i was stealing more money to keep myself taken care of right because I didn't I, at that point I wasn't particularly in contact with my adopted family um, I mm -hmm. cut them off completely in 2005 was the last straw there um, but you know there is definitely a piece of me that wonders does he did he not question how bills were getting paid yeah probably a pretty good question and um, I've been in situations uh, where I, I will say I've thought things and then found out later that oh you were doing something or what? So uh, I'll, I'll say us guys can be stupid sometimes and kind of let things slide for a while. And yeah, well, it was, <laughs> I would imagine it. he was both an alcoholic and a pothead. Um, and so he was funding his own, you know, he probably wasn't paying enough attention. I mean, that's human yeah. nature. What we want to see. We don't see what we don't want to see. Right. That's human nature. Yes. Animal, right? Yeah. Most definitely. Um, yeah. But so I had access, like I said, I had access to blank checks and a signature stamp. So it was as easy as I had access and was cutting myself checks. So what, what did that look like? Like the first time you did it, do you even remember like how much it was and why? Like the very first time. 
I think the very first time it was as small as a couple hundred bucks and we had no food in the house and he wasn't going to work. And it, I mean, it was as simple as we were hungry and I wanted to make sure, you know, I was, um, had wrapped myself up in, I had to be perfect, right? I had to be the perfect wife. I had to have a job. I had to keep the house clean. I had to pay all the bills. Like I was that, you know, bringing home the bacon, fry it up in the pan, right? Sort of. Because, so let's go backward a little bit. When my parents did get divorced, the lesson that had been reiterated, uh, my mom never remarried. She stayed single as far as I can remember. Um, Never dated, never, like she went back to school and really, you know, worked on herself. And so the message that she literally said was, well, you can't trust a man. You can't depend on a man. You have to take care of yourself because nobody else will. Well, that just reinforces, right? A message that, that certainly isn't fair. Like my current partner, my fiance, uh-huh. he's fantastic. He's a full partner. But it took me a lot of years to get there and see that and see that, oh, no, that's what that's supposed to look like. Right. <laughs> so from a younger age, it was you can't depend on a man. You have to take care of yourself. You do whatever you have to do. Well, in my little head, I have to do whatever I have to do. So I have to be a sex goddess in the bedroom, a great cook in the kitchen, pay all the bills and hey, work all the time or else my husband won't love me. Well, that's not realistic, but that's the message I had in my head. That's my worth issue, right? That's my issue, but that's what that looked like. I had to do everything. And so I did. Yeah. And and what I'm hearing is that, that was something that was uh, structured in your mind based on your experiences growing up. And so this is what's acceptable and this is where I should be, how I should be, et cetera. This and is what's so, acceptable. Yeah. Right. And then when things got kind of rough, you did what you felt you had to do to maintain that persona, so to say. And I think in the beginning, like you rationalize, and I'm sure everyone on earth, no matter what your thing is, right? Whether it was the first time you got high, the first time you had a drink, whatever, right? The first time you went and gambled, like whatever your issue is, we all have something. That first time you rationalize to yourself, ah, oh, just this once, I'm just going to do it once. I just want to see what it's like. I just, whatever, whatever story we tell ourselves, right? Because we do, we are. And so it's real easy. And then when you don't get caught the first time or there's no consequences, what happens? You do it again. It felt good, right? I got away with it, whatever, whatever story you tell yourself and you keep doing it and then you spiral into it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that, there's something else I, I talk about a lot with people, uh, people that have not been in trouble. Right. Um, I like to tell people, you know, you're never taught what the law is. You're expected to know what it is, but technically you're never taught. Like if you do this, these are the consequences. If you do that, like, I mean, the penal code is like this, right? So we, we expect people to know, but we never, it's never taught unless you go to law school for criminal justice. Right. Um, It's that implicit versus explicit thing. Exactly. So when you started doing this, Did you ever look into, if I get in trouble, this is what I'm looking at? I knew it was wrong. Like I was stealing money from someone. (laughs) I mean, he hired me as his bookkeeper. He was trusting me, right? I was betraying the trust placed in me. 
um, you know, I knew it was wrong, but it was so easy to rationalize in my little head. Oh, well, we really need it. We need to pay the mortgage. I need to keep a roof Mm -hmm. over my head. I've got nowhere to go. Right. And over time it got easier and easier and the amounts got larger and larger. I think the first time I did it, it was maybe a couple hundred bucks. And then the next time it was a couple hundred more. And the next time it was a couple hundred more. And, you know, it just kept increasing. But no, I never looked at, and we'll get there later in the story, but the <laughs> second time when I went back to prison, the second time I knew exactly the level of felony I was flirting with, <laughs> which is so stuff to say. Well, you got <laughs> right. educated after the first time, right? <laughs> right. After, after that first arrest and I saw all of the felonies, I mean, I got a lot of felonies. <laughs> it's all money crime. I never fell into addiction. I wasn't running guns. I wasn't selling drugs. I was stealing a shit ton of money. So, right? so, but, but, but let's talk about that, right? Because like you said, you did, it was a, a few hundred bucks and then it was a few hundred more and then you got up into the thousands, thousands, right? Because so, I knew this, this sounds messed up, but I knew not to write a check over 10 grand because the bank would flag that. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, no. And yeah, I, I've known people in the money game and yeah mm-hmm. they know exactly what the limits are and not to go because right. you don't draw attention to yourself right right you hit hit and go um so in that without having addiction to drugs or anything else would you categorize what you were doing as addictive absolutely right because as you get away with it right you do it again and again and for more money and more money and yeah absolutely that because i mean it might not be what people consider hitting a lick, but that's exactly what that was. It's, it, it, it's just a more blue collar, right? Or white collar. <laughs> but it's no different. Really. It, it's no different. It's no different. It's just, you don't have to use a gun. You use a pen right. or a computer. Right. Um, no. And that's something else I, I like to bring up with people, especially like that don't understand, like, why would someone do that? And it's like, I'm sure. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm sure like, like you said, at first it was like, man, out of necessity, in hindsight, you probably look and go on. I probably could have just said, hey, I need a few hundred and he would have gave it to me. And probably. I, w- I would have never went to prison and would have got my life together, whatever. Right. right. Um, but then on the flip side, yeah, you get away with it. Oh, well, you know, oh, wait, let's see well, how. Also, and- so, so also let's go. So let's go backward there actually yeah. a little bit. because Some of the explanation could be. So. We didn't have children. Um, so I was, um, I'm going to say mid-30s. I don't remember exactly, but I was probably mid-30s, right? Okay. So fully adult, right? Wasn't particularly in con. I had cut out my adoptive dad years before that, so didn't have any financial support there. Right. My adoptive mom was still peripherally in my life, but she certainly didn't have any sort of money. Okay. My husband at that time came from a very affluent family. We got married in Coscob, Connecticut. If anybody knows where that is, it's a very white, affluent, right, neighborhood. Um, His dad had been a vice president of like BP way, like when it was still Exxon, right? Plenty of money there. But when I told his, because we were pretty tight with his mom and his mom had been sending us money fairly regularly. Um, and she obviously needed to cut us off, right? Was, didn't want to still be supporting her son when she had two girls in college. Get it? 
but she didn't believe me when I told him, told her about his alcoholism. Never mind right. that she and her husband had both been alcoholics, right? That's a that's a secret we don't talk about. Hmm. And she didn't believe me with how abusive he was getting. Um, and it was at the point where like holes in the walls, things broken. No, he didn't put his hands on me, but he, it was definitely getting there. Like that was right. going to be the next. That's how that escalates, right? For anybody right. that knows that, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what ended up before I actually left him that last Christmas, um, we were supposed to go. She lived in Florida now. Uh, we were supposed to go home for Christmas. Um, and things had gotten so bad with him that I flat up until the moment we were supposed to get on a plane, we were going, we were going, no, I'm not, no, I'm not going anywhere with you. Um, so I sent him to Florida by himself. Mm. Um, and he had several episodes in a bar um, there and his mom finally believed me. Well, but he's now an adult, so she can't force him to go to rehab. He doesn't see there's a problem. Um, we didn't have any children. So anywhere that might have been a resource for us well we didn't qualify because we were both working we both made money right didn't have any kids so a lot of the places that do exist for help which are great and help a whole lot of people didn't help somebody like me right you know and i got back into that train you know as we get there as we fast forward before i went back to prison the second time i was begging for help begging for help from all kinds of organizations because I didn't want to go back to prison Um, but either made too much money to qualify didn't have kids didn't have substance abuse didn't have an eviction notice but then when I did have an eviction notice they didn't have funding like there's all kinds of barriers there right Right. so yeah I ended up stealing money again for my next set of felonies because I couldn't get help from any place else okay let's Let's get back to to going to prison for the first time. So okay. how do you get caught? I still don't know how I got caught. I wasn't okay. even looking for that guy anymore. Um, so I'm past my second divorce, still with a douchebag um, who actually was on parole. I actually, So I was still stealing money, right? Got yet Mr. Douchebag, um, got him through his parole term, right? And he went immediately back to meth after we, he successfully completed parole. So there was another abusive man with an addiction issue, right? There's mm-hmm. a theme here, folks. Yeah. Um, he had, it was two years on meth with him of a nightmare of, I love you, I need you, I can't be clean without you, blah, blah, blah. Um, so he actually had been at my home, wouldn't leave, had to call the police, turned it into a domestic couple weeks later the same set of officers returned to my apartment to arrest me um and remembered one of them because he resisted arrest like it was a big memorable Mm. kind of thing so one of the officers that was there to arrest me that night remembered from a few weeks prior um they were actually as okay i've never been arrested before so don't exactly know how it's supposed to go they let me put on a coat They let me put on shoot like they were probably as kind and professional as they could be, even though they were still arresting me, Mm. Um, transported me to booking. Um, I've never been booked before, never spent a night in jail. And I'm at this point, what, probably 37, something like that. 
um, was scared to death, had no idea what to expect, what this was going to look like. Um, crying, shaking, being fingerprinted, being strip searched um, was horrifying. I'd never had to do that before. I had no, and I, except for my, you know, last boyfriend that I had the domestic with, I never even knew anybody that I knew of that had been in the system, had been arrested, had been to jail. Like that was, that whole world was completely new to me. Had no idea what to expect. I got lucky in a way. I only spent one night in jail. I bonded out with stolen money the next day. <laughs> of course. Right? right. I'm being honest here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Bonded out the next day. It took a full I remember it being just over a year in the court system, in the legal system. I was out on bond the entire time. So I never spent more than one single night in jail before I was sentenced to the Department of Corrections. Interesting. Huh. White privilege. Right? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Would a woman of color been in the same boat? Probably <clears throat> not. Probably not. And 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 that sucks, but that's that's real. Yeah, and a lot of people don't think so, but yeah, and I appreciate you saying that. You know, I mean, because yeah, yeah. Uh, most most white people go, no, that's not true, and I'm like, yeah, it is. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. little bit a little bit, a little bit. bit. Yeah. Maybe not for everybody, right? But yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay, so you bond out. You're back and forth in court for a year what eventually happens in court and then you have to surrender and all that fun stuff. So I got through. Um, so originally I was assigned a public defender. Mm -hmm. We all know how that goes. That's not usually a good thing. So it just so happened that one of my bookkeeping clients happened to be a criminal defense attorney. So I went to him, told him what was going on, asked some questions and he actually ended up representing me in my first case. Hmm. Um, he seemed sure that my complete lack of criminal history, white collar crime, let's be real, white woman, mm -hmm. I would probably get community corrections. Um, and so that's, and my PSI even recommended. Um, so for those that don't know, pre-sentencing investigation, mm -hmm. that's sort of you meet with, for lack of a better word, a therapist, and they ask you about any prior history, mm -hmm. family Blah, blah, blah. So what sort of bit me on the ass in a way is I didn't have any documented mental health issues, right? Okay, let's be real here. Clearly something was not right in my head that I was doing, making these choices, right? Sure, not a substance problem. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing meth. I wasn't shooting heroin, like whatever else. Wasn't popping pills, right? The, the, the problem I had is you look at me, I'm educated, I'm articulate. I'm white, clearly, <clears throat> and so you think everything's great. Well, clearly everything's not great because I'm making stupid choices that are going to get me in some serious trouble. Mm -hmm. But nobody looks at worth issues as being something to be solved when they are, right? So we really thought community corrections. And so for the entire year, six to eight months that he's representing me before we get to try, not even a trial. I took a deal like everybody else on earth. You take a deal because they scare the hell out of mm -hmm. you with what could happen. Right. How many people do we know? 
right? That are in on a deal that's not even the crime they actually committed. It happens, people. It happens every day. So I had planned for community corrections, right? Um, Packing up my apartment, signing a power of attorney to give a friend access to my money and my stuff. Um, Because I didn't have any family at this point. I'm not married, don't have kids, don't have family. Like I don't have anybody else. Um, And so we really thought community corrections. So that's what we prepared for. Well, the county I was in, Jefferson County, Colorado, they really don't like economic crime done by white women, right? So I get, so let's see, case number one was roughly $300,000 from the doctor I worked for. Case number two, sentenced on at the same time, was like $12,000. So for roughly $312,000, I received and I think that ended up being like six or eight different felonies, all money crime. The way they did it is money up to a certain amount of money, certain amount mm. of dollar amount was a certain mm. level of felony. So my yeah. stuff is all F3s. Um, got an eight-year Department of Correction sentence. All right. So that wraps up the first segment of this interview. As, as always, there'll be two more after this. So really interesting, right? Um, from an upbringing that's um, not similar to probably most individuals, but probably has some of the same aspects. A lot of things were discussed, including for the first time, someone who actually was able to bail out, right? And actually uh, fight their case from outside and then having to basically go in, which the next segment will be about. And this is money, right? So this is something different, more blue collar crime. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for the second segment. And remember to like, comment, share this, download it, and let's get some more awareness out there.